This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. This is The Conspiracy Show. I am Richard Serrett. You have found us. Congratulations. It's great to be with you, as always, and hanging out with you all. Uh, truly, the highlight of uh, my uh, my week. Come on in, grab a stool by the fire. You are among friends. Coming to you live from our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto, Canada, AM 740 and 96.7 FM. Graham Hancock will join the conversation in just a few moments. He's recently published the sequel to his international bestseller, Fingerprints of the Gods, uh, this one is called Magicians of the... Whoops, let me hold that up there for our, on our webcam. It's called Magicians of the Gods. And let me just read here uh, quickly from the back cover, because this sets the table quite nicely. Uh, near the end of the last ice age, 12,800 years ago, a giant comet that had entered the solar system from deep space thousands of years earlier broke into multiple fragments. Some of these struck the Earth causing a global cataclysm on a scale unseen since the extinction of the dinosaurs. At least eight of the fragments hit the North American ice cap, while further fragments hit the northern European ice cap. The impacts from the comet fragments a mile wide, approaching at more than 60,000 miles per hour, generated huge amounts of heat, which instantly liquidized millions of square kilometers of ice, destabilizing the Earth's crust and causing the global deluge, the flood, that is remembered in myths all around the world. Graham Hancock believes a second series of impacts, uh, or documents rather, how a series, a second series of impacts equally devastating coincides with the exact date that Plato gives for the destruction and submergence of Atlantis. The evidence in Magicians of the Gods seems irrefutable, that a technologically advanced civilization flourished during the Ice Age and was destroyed during the Second Cataclysm sometime between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. We'll get to that conversation very shortly. Ian uh, Robertson, my uh, technical producer, is uh, sick tonight, so Tim Spreen is back for a second straight week. Admit it, Tim, you miss us here on the program, and you're, you're secretly trying to get work your way back onto the program. Isn't that true? He's, <laughs> he's nodding his head. All right. Uh, Albert Vinzel here, running our Hangout on Air. And if you want to stream this show live on YouTube and actually see what's going on in the studio, uh, go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett, R-I-C-H-A-R-D-S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T. S-Y-R-E-T-T. Go to the top or near the top of the feed, find the tweet 
with the HOA link. HOA's Hangout on Air. Click on that and you are in. And while you're there, be sure to follow me at Richard Serrett. You also, very quickly, want to get up to the website strangeplanet.ca. That's the landing page. And from there, you can go to the TV show website, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, Season 4, coming soon to Vision TV. Uh, incidentally, a quick aside, I think now we've sold the show in the Czech Republic as well as Thailand. So our quest for worldwide domination marches on. And, of course, Season 4 coming to Vision TV and across Canada very soon. Uh, also, plenty of great articles in the slide carousel if you go to the radio show page for The Conspiracy Show. And also there are the past show archives. But to get the past shows, you need to register. It's fast, easy, and free. All righty then, my friends. Let us get to the main entree, uh, shall, shall we? In a, um, a note here that Graham Hancock will be the keynote speaker at a Conspiracy Culture special event Sunday, December the 13th. Uh, however, it is sold out. It has been sold out for some time, but I do have one pair of tickets. Patrick and Kadena, my good friends from Conspiracy Culture, just pulled into the driveway here at Zoomerplex a short while ago, handed me a pair of highly coveted uh, tickets for this event, again happening Sunday, December the 13th, and I'll give them out during the hour to uh, a lucky caller who has an interesting question or comment. Graham Hancock is the author of the major international nonfiction bestseller, The Sign and the Seal, Fingerprints of the Gods, The Message of the Sphinx, Heaven's Mirror, Underworld, and Supernatural. His books have sold more than 7 million copies worldwide and have been translated into 30 languages. His public lectures, radio, and TV appearances, including two major TV series, Quest for the Lost Civilization, and Flooded Kingdoms of the Ice Age, as well as his strong uh, presence on the Internet, have put his ideas before audiences of tens of millions. He's become recognized as an unconventional thinker who raises resonant questions about humanity's past and about our present predicament. And again, the new book, Magicians of the Gods, the sequel to the international bestseller Fingerprints of the Gods. Graham Hancock, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Very nice to be with you. Uh, great pleasure. And, and I tell you, the city is buzzing in, in anticipation of your appearance at the Bloor Cinema uh, on Sunday, December the 13th. As I mentioned, sold out, my friend. You must feel pretty good about that. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm really glad that there's interest in this subject the to be to be growing, you know, the notion, the notion of a lost civilization and a great cataclysm at the end of the Ice Age uh, was center of my book, uh, Fingerprints of the Gods, in 1995. That book came in for a lot of academic criticism at the time. The whole idea kind of disappeared from view for quite a while, but new evidence has just been piling in, really solid scientific evidence, archaeological evidence, which supports that case. And that's why I've written this new book, and I've been giving talks all over Britain, all over the United States. And, and uh, yeah, it appears, to, it appears to resonate. It appears that, uh, you know, people are, are, are no longer happy with the story we've been told about our past. And we shouldn't forget that history is a, is a story. It is a narrative, uh, and it's a narrative that's controlled by particular groups of individuals. And, and I think there's a, a growing awareness in our society that what authority authority figures tell us aren't necessarily true. 100% there is. And, and uh, I mean, the, 
those things that don't fit the the orthodox uh, view of our history are simply discarded or or suppressed because it just yes. it presents and, and huge a, problems. There's a very strong sense in which this this relates to the whole mind control operation that's in effect in in the modern world today. Uh, you know, if you have uh, a grip on the past, if you control how the past is understood, then that puts you in a very strong position to control the present and to control the future. And I think that's one of the reasons why radical ideas about the past, which move away from the mainstream position, are, are so fiercely attacked because it's understood that these are subversive ideas, that if, that if um, we overturn the grip on the past that established authorities have, then this actually threatens those authorities' grip on the present as well. Uh, my, uh, my beloved Mighty, Mighty Aphrodite, as I call her on the, on the air, spends some time working as an archaeologist, and I know from her how, how political it is, uh, but it really uh, it, it cuts across all of the major disciplines, how information is controlled uh, at the top, I mean, we, mm-hmm. we talk in, in terms of, you know, the medical sciences and so forth about the peer-reviewed process, but if you look yep. into how that, I mean, it's the same thing. The, the information is, there's a firewall uh, yep. that's been cleverly built, and it doesn't take a lot of people. I don't think people understand, you know, it doesn't take, it's not a huge military operation. It doesn't take but a few to control the flow of information. You're absolutely right, yeah. That's, that's, that's the case. I've, I've, I've seen this again and again over the years. Working, working in this field, but I think the new, the new development, certainly for me, what's, what's changed in the past 20 years is, is well, obviously I, I published Fingerprints of the Gods in 1995. It was a very different world then. We had the internet, but it wasn't strong in the way that it is today. And I think this, um, the, the growth of the internet coupled with new scientific evidence and new discoveries that can't be explained by the old paradigm and broad awareness of those new discoveries because of the internet i think that that really changes everything and it allows us to you know to consider new ways of looking at the past and new ways of moving forward you're certainly on the on the forefront in terms of bringing this information about ancient uh, technologically advanced civilizations uh, that survived cataclysmic events um, I had Janet Sitchin on, on the program. I think it was, was it last week, Albert? Janet, of course, the, the niece of uh, Zechariah Sitchin. He yeah. talked about the Anunnaki. Uh, I had um, L.A. Marzuli. I brought L.A. to town. Uh, uh, who comes at it from a, 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 di- a different perspective? He's talking about, and he's been to, you know, the, um, there's a, a great picture of the, uh, this uh, jigsaw puzzle of a, of a wall, a fortress in Peru, that's uh, Sacse Huaman. Yeah, Sacse Huaman. He talks about it in terms of you know the Watchers and fallen angel technology or architecture. We had um, Michael Cremo who talks about uh, how the Earth is far older in, in ancient uh, technologically advanced civilizations going back yeah. you know millions of years. Sure. Are you all sure. talking about the same things but using different language, coming at it from a different perspective? No, I would say that we're all talking about the same problem which is that the present explanation of the past, the present narrative about the past that's taught in our schools and universities, that's broadly disseminated by their friends in the, in the media, that that doesn't cut it anymore. Um, there's, a, there's, there's a deep enigma uh, hidden in the past of the human race. And, and people from all 
different directions and all different points of view have been struck by that mystery and are seeking for explanations for it. And I think that's, I think that's healthy. I think it's healthy that we have a variety of ways to try to get around these anomalies in the past, these things that just don't fit what we're being told. My own position is, is, is fairly clear. Uh, I think we, we're a species with amnesia. I think we've lost uh, a very important part of the human story. I think there was an episode of advanced civilization roughly constrained between 70,000 years ago and 11,600 years ago. And this advanced civilization coexisted on planet Earth with uh, less advanced peoples, with hunter-gatherers, uh, nomadic groups of hunter-gatherers, just as our civilization does today. I mean, we have very advanced technological societies uh, all over the globe, but we also have um, l less complex societies, societies of, of hunter-gatherers and nomads in the Kalahari Desert, for example, or, or in the Amazon. And I think this was the case before. I think this, this lost, advanced human civilization had contact with these... Uh, hunter-gatherer peoples, shared some of its knowledge with them. But the great cataclysm, which is absolutely solidly documented in science now, between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago, wiped that advanced civilization out, leaving only a few survivors. And those survivors settled amongst hunter-gatherer peoples uh, and sought to rebuild civilization uh, in many interesting ways, but did not quite succeed. And we're left with this haunting memory, this, this tradition, this, this feeling of something really important, lost and locked away and hidden in our past. And the effort now is to uncover it and, and, and show the truth. Graham Hancock, Magicians of the Gods. We'll come back and continue this conversation and delve further into this ancient technologically advanced civilization and the comet something wicked this way comes back with more of the conspiracy show stay with us welcome back graham hancock is here the book is magicians of the gods graham will be in town sunday december the 13th from 12 to 2 at the bloor hot dog cinema however the event is sold out you are in luck however i have a pair of tickets uh, that uh, we will give away during the hour uh, to some lucky caller with a question or comment for Mr. Hancock. All right. Uh, let's talk about this advanced uh, civilization, the technologically advanced civilization, the sages, the magicians, uh, the shining ones, as they've been called. Um, where do they come from? And, and where, I mean, is it, was it in Atlantis specifically, or were they scattered elsewhere around the world? Well, I think what, what we need to understand is that Atlantis is just one of a great many almost identical stories that are told around the world. In ancient India, for example, the lost island, the lost continent was, was called Kumari Kandam and was considered to uh, exist on a great extension of India southwards into the Indian Ocean, which was later submerged beneath the seas in a cataclysmic disaster. And it's interesting that the Indian Kumari Kandam tradition actually gives the same date, which is 11,600 years ago, for the cataclysm that wiped that lost continent out, that Plato gives for the destruction and submergence of Atlantis. You know, it's common for 
academics to mock the Atlantis story and, and to treat it as though it's some, something belonging to the lunatic fringe. Um, and yet the origin of this story is the great Greek philosopher Plato, who tells us that he got the story through his family line, his ancestor Solon, the lawmaker, had been in Egypt and there had been told the story of Atlantis and had been told that Atlantis was destroyed and submerged 9,000 years before his time. And that's since Solon lived in 600 BC, that's 9,600 BC, which is 11,600 years ago, which happens to coincide exactly with the second spike of cataclysm that you mentioned uh, in, in your intro to this. There were, there were two cataclysmic events, one 12,800 years ago and a second 11,600 years ago. Both were accompanied by global wildfires and, and, and an enormous flooding. And the, the event 11,600 years ago, particularly massive floods, which are known in the geological record as Meltwater Pulse 1b. And that's the date that coincides exactly with Plato's date for the submergence of Atlantis. So, you know, if he made it up, uh, as he's accused of doing, um, he turns out to have been astonishingly on the money with, uh, with the latest uh, geological science. And, I, you know, we have to... We have to consider the implications of that and no longer just laugh at the Atlantis tradition. There's a worldwide memory of a lost, advanced civilization. And what type of, I mean, how advanced were they technologically? Were they, we, we hear, you know, from the Vedic traditions, uh, um, we, we hear about flying machines. Robert Oppenheimer talked about, was sort of asked off mic, I guess, about is this the first time in human history that an H-bomb has been detonated, mm -hmm. and he said yes in modern times, and then we have yeah. sand being fused into glass in the Gobi Desert and so forth. Did they have nuclear technology? Yeah, well, that's the Brahmastra weapon that's referred to in the, the Vedas and, of course, the Vimanas, the, the ancient Indian flying machines and so on. Look, there's been so much work um, done on this, so much published on, on all of this that uh, I feel it's superfluous for me, to, for me to go into it. I've tried to concentrate on, on completely new information in this book and new and, and solidly based scientific information. I'm, I'm here, I'm doing this because I want to overturn the paradigm. The evidence deserves it. I'm, it's not me who's going to overturn the paradigm. I'm simply the messenger. In Magicians of the Gods, I'm putting together the latest scientific evidence that shows that the existing paradigm of history cannot stand. And that evidence up till now has been confined to the rarefied air of scientific journals, and very little of it has filtered out into the public domain. I think as it does so, uh, we're going to understand that the story we've been given about the past is very, very deeply misleading, and we must get to grips with a major forgotten episode in human history, a civilization that could lift and move blocks of stone weighing a thousand tons uh, and more, which could accurately map the world and left us maps that show the world as it looked during the last ice age when sea level was 400 feet lower than it is today. Sea level was 400 feet lower than it is today because all that water was locked up in ice caps sitting on top of North America and Northern Europe. And these ancient maps um, incorporate fantastically accurate longitudes. And that's something our civilization 
couldn't do until the end of the 18th century or the beginning of the 19th century when accurate marine chronometers were invented. So the maps themselves tell us that during the Ice Age, more than 12,000 years ago, there was a civilization on this planet that explored and mapped the entire Earth uh, and that did so with a level of accuracy and technology that, that, that would not be matched again until the early 19th century uh, of, of our era. Um, there, there, there are also issues like uh, astronomy, incredibly precise astronomy built into ancient monuments, uh, which is work of high precision. Uh, artifacts like the Mayan calendar, which make it possible to predict an eclipse of the moon 200,000 years into the future or 200,000 years into the past. The Mayan calendar has a greater accuracy in the length that it gives us for the solar year than we ourselves use today. All of these are legacies of a great civilization of prehistoric antiquity that for a long while has only been remembered in myths and traditions, but now is coming out into the light again as a result of new scientific discoveries. Uh, when we think about the Bronze Age in Europe and, and you know, wondered where, where did all that copper come from to fuel the Bronze Age? And, and I've yes. been told there's this huge copper mining operation on the shores of Lake Superior. Uh, yes, indeed how, there is. And how far back all, was that? all absolutely true. And again, I mean, the recent history, the recent history that you're talking about here, and I regard the Bronze Age as recent history, uh, <laughs> is also being misleadingly told to us. You know, our academics would like us to believe that nobody was crossing the oceans until the time of Columbus. That's an astonishingly Eurocentric position. Um, of course, our ancestors were crossing the oceans. Of course, they were trading across vast networks. Of course, it's not an accident that there's cocaine and nicotine in Bronze Age mummies from, uh, from Egypt, as a matter of fact, uh, because cocaine and nicotine are both a New Age plant products, which you don't get in the old world. But all of this evidence is just brushed under the carpet or dismissed by the mainstream because it disturbs their comfortable, um, somehow reassuring view of history. And that's a view of history which is intended, intended to paint us as the apex and the pinnacle of the human story, as though we are what the human story has been all about. Uh, whereas, in fact, that's not the case. We're just part of a much longer story, and there have been rises and falls before, and we've lost far more uh, than it's possible to imagine. Uh, I'm just thinking, going back to the you know this mining operation, how large would those uh, vessels have had to have been in order to you know, to ship copper back to Europe to, for, the, for the Bronze Age? I mean... Well, I, I think that's kind of a non-question in a way. I mean, you know, who cares how large the vessels were? You can have, you can have smaller vessels which, can, which are also capable of crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Um, the, the, the Atlantic Ocean, the ancient Egyptians had ships that were capable of navigating the high seas. There's a, there's a, 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 a ship 130 foot long was buried off the south side of the Great Pyramid uh, in Giza. Uh, recently, you know, dug up and, and reconstructed a beautiful sea-going, ocean-going vessel. Um, but this is, you know, again, we're looking at revisions of very recent history here. The much more troubling issues, the much deeper problems, the ones that really change our view of the past, 
take us much further back into the last ice age. I'm not actually even very interested in the period of 1000 BC. We have written records for that period, enormous written records. What's fascinating is to go back to the period where there are no written records at all and where everything we understand about the past is based on very fragmentary evidence, sometimes less than 1% of an archaeological site dug up by archaeologists. How did the, uh, the Shining Ones, the magicians, how did they survive this cataclysm? Well, the traditions that report on this suggest that we're dealing with a maritime, seafaring civilization. There's a particular body of texts at the Temple of Horus at Edfu in Upper Egypt called the Edfu Building Texts, which describe this whole story in great detail. And they leave us in no doubt that some members of the civilization, which was an island-based civilization that was destroyed in this, this comet-induced cataclysm, the comet, part of the comet actually hit that island, that some members of that civilization were still at sea and far away when the disaster happened, and that they made their way back to their, navigated back to their home island, uh, and, and found it gone and disappeared beneath the waves and nothing but mud filling the sea where it had stood, and they made it their project. It became their, their mission, their sacred purpose to resurrect or to reconstitute, or if you like, to reincarnate the lost world of the gods. And they set about wandering the world in order to do that. And Egypt certainly was not the only place that they settled. There's an intriguing site in Turkey, a megalithic site on a gigantic scale, 50 times bigger than Stonehenge, and 7,000 years older than Stonehenge that has recently been discovered and that I feature heavily in Magicians of the Gods. And the date of this site is also 11,600 years ago. It looks like a transfer of technology. It looks like people who were already master architects and master builders turned up there and taught the local hunter-gatherers, used it, if you like, used this project as a, as a gathering point for initiation into their system of ideas and taught the local hunter-gatherers how to become sedentary, settled people. They taught them agriculture because agriculture suddenly appears in Turkey at this time. They taught them how to make megalithic architecture. And then after they'd run this site for a thousand years, they deliberately buried it. They completely covered it up like a time capsule. In fact, the name Gobekli Tepe in the Turkish language means pot-bellied hill. And the whole hill pot-bellied hill that sits over the top of this site is entirely artificial. They went to enormous lengths to bury it as a time capsule. And it's intriguing and extraordinary that it's only been discovered in our era and the excavations really didn't begin until the second half of the 1990s. And each new turn of the spade reveals more and more astonishing information there. Why would they have covered it up, Graham? For the same reason that we would cover something up and bury it deeply out of human sight uh, to pass a message to the future, uh, to, to send down a time capsule to the future, a completely intact time capsule. That appears to me to have been their intention. We can't absolutely know their intention, you know, because we don't have, we don't have written documents that we can interpret, although there are certainly symbols and signs carved on these pillars. We just don't know what they say. Uh, but the astronomical indications of the site, and we don't have time tonight to go into this in detail, but I back it up 
thoroughly in the book. The astronomical indications of the site include a picture carved on a stone pillar, pillar 43 in enclosure D, uh, of the sky in our time today, uh, and of the area of the sky that's divided by the dark rift of the Milky Way at the center of our galaxy. On one side stands the constellation of Sagittarius, and on the other side stands the constellation of Scorpio. And in this image, the sun is sitting absolutely straddling the dark rift of the Milky Way. And that only happens on the winter solstice, the 21st of December, uh, in our epoch, and indeed in a very narrow window between roughly 1960 and 2040. It implies a vast knowledge of astronomy, the ability to calculate the changes in the sky forwards for thousands of years, uh, and an ancient wish to communicate a message to people who live in our time, which is pay attention, pay attention to the sky. All right. Uh, we're coming up on an, another break here. I, I do, um, when we come back, want to talk about uh, the comet uh, and whether it's headed back this way. In fact, uh, you mentioned these megaliths, and there seems to be some indication carved into those uh, that the, uh, the comet is coming back. We'll discuss that and much more as well, uh, perhaps, uh, have time to give away a pair of tickets to Graham Hancock's Magician of the Gods presentation at the Bloor Cinema. That's the Hot Dog Cinema, coming up Sunday, December the 13th, 12 to 2. Back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Uh, welcome back. Graham Hancock stays with us. The new book is Magicians of the Gods, and you mentioned this incredible archaeological find in Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. I'm wondering, uh, I mean, are you monitoring the kinds of, I'm, 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 no doubt you are, the, the, the information coming out of there and, and, and uh, I mean, how closely is it being controlled? What do you hear? What do you know about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm monitoring the inf information very, very closely. Um, I would not say that there is um, a deliberate attempt to hide the truth from us at Gobekli Tepe. I've met the archaeologists working on the site. I had the privilege of being shown around the site for more than three days on my research, first, first research visit there by Klaus Schmidt, who was the original discoverer and excavator uh, of the site. And I, I, I uh, unfortunately, he passed away in 2014. And I'm not so sure about the new regime that's taken over there. But he certainly was a very open man. And he showed me everything I want to see. I wanted to see the only thing he said that worried me was that 50 times as much as they've already excavated is still lying under the ground. They've been over the site with ground-penetrating radar, uh, and they found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these huge 20 to 50 ton megalithic pillars are lying deeply buried under the ground. Uh, and his position, which I thought was rather odd, was that we're planning to just leave most of them there and not excavate them at all. Um, and if that is the case, it would be, it would be a shocking waste of opportunity. Uh, to discover the truth about our past. One of the puzzles of Gobekli Tepe, I mentioned to you that it was founded 11,600 years ago and then ran for about another thousand years before being deliberately buried. One of the puzzles about it is that the best stuff is the oldest. The oldest material, the oldest megaliths 
are towering and gigantic and beautifully executed. But as the thousand years pass, the skills seem to seem to devolve. And I, I think that archaeology is a bit worried about the implications of this because the only possible explanation can be that that site benefited from a legacy of knowledge, of advanced knowledge, which allowed the best work to be done immediately. Uh, and then as time passed, those skills began to fade away. Uh, are there signatures and similarities between the the design in Gobekli Tepe or in, in Sacsayhuaman? Are, are there similarities? I think the big similarities um, that, we, that we're really going to observe uh, and, and are going to require us to redate a number of megalithic sites are, for example, between Gobekli Tepe and the P-shaped megaliths of Menorca in the Balearic Islands in the Western Mediterranean. Those megaliths in Menorca are only thought to be about 4,000 years old. But you see, archaeologists can't directly date the cutting of stone. They have to date organic material found in association with the stone. And so many megalithic sites have been exposed to the elements, trampled over by later cultures. Falsely young organic material has been introduced, giving falsely young dates. I think we're going to have to reconsider the dates of many sites. The megalithic temples of Malta in the Mediterranean are also deeply puzzling, massive, extraordinary temples, so-called temples. And, and um, they're thought to be about five or five and a half thousand years old. But again, they look very like Gobekli Tepe as well, which we know is eleven and a half thousand years old. And the big one, of course, is the Great Sphinx of Giza, um, which, uh, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, has been the subject of a controversy since the early 1990s when my friends and colleagues John Anthony West and Professor Robert Schock, Professor of Geology at Boston University, made the case that the Great Sphinx did not date to 2500 BC, 4500 years ago, the time of the pharaohs, but that it's thousands of years older, going back to about 12,000 years ago. And at the time, Egyptologists dismissed their arguments and said this couldn't be so if there was a culture in the world more than 12,000 years ago that was create, capable of creating something on a monumental scale like the Great Sphinx, a massive megalithic site like that, why we would find other very ancient megalithic sites. Well, you see, they could get away with saying that in 1992, but now that we've got this groundbreaking discovery of Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, and by the way, there's another site in Indonesia that also dates back to the same period that's recently been discovered, that argument no longer holds. The Great Sphinx makes perfect sense. There was a culture in the world more than 12,000 years ago that was capable of creating structures like this, of moving blocks in the case of Gobekli Tepe, weighing up to 50 tons, in the case of the Sphinx and the megalithic temples in front of the Sphinx, 100 tons or more, and then go over to Baalbek in the Lebanon and look at the gigantic freestanding megalithic wall that surrounds the Roman temple of Jupiter there. There is a Roman temple there, and this is what's caused problems in uh, understanding this site, but the megalithic wall is far older, and that's where, where we find blocks of... 900 tons each. I mean, when I first saw these things, I was just stunned. I can't imagine. 30 feet above the ground, blocks of stone 60 feet long. You know, they've been moved around as though they were, as though they were featherweight. And, and the evidence is, is accumulating. I think it's reached the point of being irrefutable now. Well, it'll be and interesting we to see how they... The how, work of an advanced civilization. It'll be in, interesting to see how they continue to spin this to sort of keep a lid on things because, you know, there is tenure at stake in many cases. Uh, tenure at stake and a whole view of looking at the world. 
All right, we'll come back. One final segment remains with Graham Hancock, Magicians of the Gods. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. Graham Hancock is with me and coming to town Sunday, December the 13th. It is sold out, the Bloor Cinema, absolutely, completely sold out. However, I have got a pair of tickets, uh, one pair of tickets uh, to give away to one lucky caller. Uh, question or comment here in the last segment for Graham Hancock, Magicians of the Gods. Uh, before we get to the... Uh, the comet and whether or not it's headed back our way, I want to ask you, uh, this is a story I posted on your, your website, GrahamHancock.com, and uh, mm-hmm. we're hearing a lot about this these, these days. Is The um, Egyptian officials say there is now a 90% chance, they are 90% sure, rather, there is a hidden chamber in King Tutankhamun's tomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can you tell us about that, and, and what does that have to do with, perhaps, what you're talking about in Magicians of the Gods? Well, again, Richard, you keep bringing me back to recent history. King Tutankhamun's tomb and whether there's a hidden chamber in it or not uh, is not going to change history. Tutankhamun's tomb is from the time of about 1200 before Christ. It's really recent history. We have thorough documentation for that period, and we have a pretty good idea, not a complete idea, but a pretty good idea what was going to go, what was going on. And we're not going to find anything there that's going to completely turn our view of the world around. I, I'm, I'm quite sure that the, the work is correct, that there is a, a, a concealed chamber, and we will find more grave goods uh, connected to the burial of Tutankhamun in there. Actually, much more interesting is the, the, the recent uh, evidence with thermal imaging surveys over the Great Pyramid of multiple uh, hidden chambers inside the Great Pyramid of Giza. Now, that has the potential to rewrite history because the date of the Great Pyramid of Giza, which Egyptologists like to place at 2500 BC, is actually very uncertain. There are no inscriptions at all on the Great Pyramid that really tie it down to that date. And there are many indications that it may be much, much older, that parts of it may be 12,000 years old, as old as the Sphinx. And there are traditions, ancient Egyptian traditions, of a, an archive of wisdom laid down before the flood, this is stated quite specifically, having been hidden away in chambers inside the Great Pyramid. So, you know, the, the, the thermal imaging and the ground-penetrating radar technology that show up these chambers are, yeah, great, it's, a, it's going to be a fun story, it'll live for two or three days about Tutankhamun, but it's not going to change the world. What's being found in the Great Pyramid, the possibility of a network of hidden chambers and passageways in the Great Pyramid, that very well could change the world. Do you think one day, uh, well, this is speculation, but it, I mean, is there a library that, would, that, that dates back 12,000 years or older that would rival the Library of Alexandria? Many ancient traditions point to this, and not just one library, but several. Uh, another site that I report on extensively in Magicians of the Gods is a newly discovered pyramid site in Indonesia dating back close to 20,000 years. And again, mysteriously, the archaeological work has been stopped there. And the electrical resistivity and ground-penetrating radar surveys inside that pyramid show three huge chambers within there. Uh, And this is is an area, Indonesia, that was massively affected by flooding uh, at the end of the Ice Age. So I think there are many parts of the world where hidden archives have been uh, concealed, and we are poised on the edge, I hope, of rediscovering them. All right, let's uh, go out to Scarborough. Wayne has a question or a comment for Graham Hancock. Wayne, good morning. Go ahead. Yes, good morning, Richard. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to uh, ask a question. Um, these ancients, it's all very interesting. 
did, uh, does he suppose that they had computer knowledge also? Uh, you know, uh, referring to their atomic power, possibly. And if I'd just like to comment from the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, is there anything new under the sun which one can say, look, this is something new. It has been here already long ago. It was here before our time. Sure. Um, this, is, uh, this is a fair question. Um, I think when we look at a lost ancient civilization that flourished between 70,000 years ago and 11,600 years ago. We're looking at a civilization that in many way, ways was very different from our own. Our gone down the route of mechanical advantage with our technology, and we're very, very good at that, no, no doubt about it. Uh, but I think that faculties of the, of the human mind, the, the, the power of the human mind with issues like telekinesis, for example, for which there's plenty of evidence, um, may have been much more highly developed in a civilization like that. So, so tasks that, that we would regard as difficult, which we would perform with cranes and huge lifting machines, uh, may have been done much more easily in the past. There are also traditions of huge blocks of stone being sung into place using music and sound to lift them off the ground rather than the mechanical means that, that we use. So there, there are many echoes like this. And did they have computers? I, I would suggest that their minds had a, a extraordinary computing power. Again and again, both the strength and the weakness of our civilization is to devolve all of these tasks onto machines rather than harnessing the full power of the human brain. All right. Uh, thank you for that, Wayne. Thank you. Um, the message that is encoded in places like Gobekli Tepe and the Sphinx and the pyramids of Egypt, warning about the great return that will occur in our time, the great return of this comet. Tell me uh, a little bit more about that, if you well, can. Well, actually, the comet returns twice a year. We pass through its debris trail twice a year, and this is not only a matter of ancient texts. This is a matter of very recent science and very recent astronomy, again reported and documented fully in Magicians of the Gods. The debris trail of the comet that we pass through twice a year is called the Torrid Meteor Stream. It takes the Earth 12 days to pass through it at the end of June, and another days, 12 days to pass through it again in November. And we've just been through the Torrid Meteor Stream. Now, most of the time, we just get meteors, you know, shooting stars, nothing, nothing very big or, or dangerous. The last significant impact from the Torrid Meteor Stream was in 1908. It was the Tunguska event, which flattened 80 million trees, fortunately, in an uninhabited area of Siberia. But the evidence is that a giant comet that was at least 100 kilometers in diameter broke up into multiple parts, as comets do. Everybody can remember Shoemaker-Levy 9 breaking into multiple parts and hitting Jupiter in 1996. This comet broke into multiple parts. Several of those fragments, some of them up to a mile wide, hit the Earth 12,800 years ago. The principal impacts were on the North American ice cap. They unleashed a global flood. 
further fragments hit the earth 11,600 years ago. Those impacts were in water. They put a cloud of water vapor into the upper atmosphere and rapidly heated the earth up because previously it had gone very cold. There were indeed additional impacts during the Bronze Age. The most recent impact was in 1908, and the astronomical evidence, very powerful mathematical calculations as well, is that there are a number of large bits of that original comet still orbiting in the torrid meteor stream, one of them as much as 30 kilometers in diameter, that there are 100 asteroids in the torrid meteor stream, which are more than a kilometer in diameter, each one of them on its own capable of causing cataclysm on Earth, and that we should be paying attention to this. It's not a message of doom and gloom. We have the technology to sweep our cosmic environment clean and to make life on Earth safe and ensure we're not the next lost civilization. But the powers that be don't want us to do that. They want to pull the wool over the, our eyes. Maybe they have some depopulation goal uh, in mind. Who knows? I, I find the way that this story is being covered up, and it's one of the reasons I've written Magicians of the Gods, the way this story is being covered up is one of the most disturbing aspects of it. Well, there have been a number of uh, astronomers. You know, every every sort of theory has its death list, but and this one is no different, really. There have been a number of astronomers that have supposedly met with uh, mysterious uh, circumstances, died under mysterious yeah. circumstances. Is that related to this cover-up, do you suppose? Uh, quite possibly it is, yeah. yeah. NASA does not want this story to get out. There's been a huge effort to to persuade us that uh, nothing, uh, that there's no real danger. Um, but major, major figures like, like the late, actually the late Sir Fred Hoyle, um, a leading British astronomer who, who taught at the University of Cambridge, Chandra Wickram Singh, um, uh, Victor Klube, Bill Napier, uh, all of whose work I document in, in the new book are, are deeply concerned about the torrid meteor stream and, and have continued to publish and continue to be ignored. But now that their evidence can be triangulated with evidence from Earth sciences of the comet impacts 12,800 and 11,600 years ago that completely changed the world, changed the world utterly, and ushered in a new story. Now that we have all that information together, it's harder to resist the case that the astronomers make. Well, Graham, uh, fascinating. Fascinating as always. And uh, again, people will... Uh We'll be very anxious to hear and see your presentation at the Bloor Cinema Sunday, December the 13th. Uh, incidentally, we did get a, a, a pair of tickets, uh, a gentleman named Rudy calling in, and uh, he is our lucky winner, and uh, Rudy will receive instructions on how to pick these up here at the radio station. Well, Graham. I'll look forward to seeing Rudy there, <laughs> and I'll right. be giving a, a detailed presentation with, with slides and taking Q&A, and it should be a fun event. Graham, thank you so much. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, likewise. Graham Hancock, Magicians of the Gods, and the website is grahamhancock.com, and we've uh, hooked up to that or linked up to that at the uh, the website strangeplanet.ca. Uh, just a quick programming note. Uh, coming up very soon on the program, of course, Debbie Papadakis, hypnotherapist, will talk about how to remove uh, blockages, subconscious uh, blockages. Uh, next week, David Yurth will be on the program. David is an inventor from Salt Lake City, and I spoke to him recently on Coast to Coast, actually. Uh, he has released, well, a press release that came out uh, about a month ago, uh, confirming that they have successfully completed the testing stage 
of a device which will eliminate carbon dioxide and other noxious fumes from the tailpipe of any internal combustion engine. Think about what I just said. Eliminate CO2. They have found a way. Now, CO2 is an incredibly stable gas. They call it a happy gas. Uh, it's difficult uh, to sort of break that covalent bonding between the one carbon and the two oxygen molecules, or atoms rather. Uh, but his device has done that. There is no reason now for an internal combustion engine to produce CO2. And that same device can be used on, let's say, for example, a coal-fire-burning generating plant or a diesel generating plant that produces electricity. This could be the end of air pollution. I kid you not, this is not an April Fool's joke. So David Yurth will be on the program to talk about that next week. And uh, also, it's, uh, I believe, Kevin Estrella, who is a, a rock and roll musician with an interesting UFO connection. We'll talk about all that. Get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca. Register. It's quick, easy, and free. And, of course, follow me on Twitter at Richard Serrett. Follow the truth. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth... The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, hi, and thank you for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your cab, your camper, RV, that greasy spoon diner just off the Trans-Canada Highway, or perhaps your cabin in the woods. A special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. All of you listening in on one of our affiliates, uh, welcome aboard the crazy train. Uh, to all of you that are listening to the podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, TalkZone, uh, TalkZone.com, uh, and uh, of course via the Conspiracy Show app and the Zoomer Radio app, both incidentally free downloads from iTunes and Google Play. Uh, take the show, take the station really with you wherever you go. An old uh, friend of the program, she's not old, she's just a dear friend of the program, I should say. Debbie Papadakis is standing by to join us, and she's on our, uh, our HOA tonight. Uh, so if you want to join the Hangout on Air, and Albert Vinzel is sort of spearheading that as per usual, you just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T, Richard, S-Y-R-E-T-T. That's the Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, and just go to the top, and you'll find it's at or near the top, a link that says HOA. You just click on that, and you are in. And you'll see everything that's going on here in the studio and also our guest, uh, who's also joining us uh, via the Hangout on a webcam, and that would be Debbie Papadakis. And uh, uh, Debbie is a registered hypnotherapist. She's right here in Toronto. She's really one of the best anywhere in the world. She was featured in Oprah Winfrey's magazine. She's been... Um, featured in Zoomer magazine. Uh, in fact, the Mighty, Aphro Mighty Aphrodite and I attended one of her workshops down in the Junction neighborhood a few weeks back. And this one was about how to remote, uh, to remove rather, a deep emotional, psychological uh, blockages that prevent us from becoming all that we can be. And this can relate to relationships, uh, finan finances, uh, career in general. 
And uh, now she's been with us a number of times in the past, and she's always been here to perform past life regressions. But we're not going to do that tonight. Uh, we've done that a number of times and on the television show. Tonight, it's all about how to remove blockages, uh, blockages that are really rooted in some kind of a fear. And now you can spend 60 years in analysis like Woody Allen, uh, but there appears to be a much faster way to get to the root of the problem, and that's what Debbie is on about uh, here. Again, Debbie Papadakis, psychotherapist, board-certified hypnotist, featured in Oprah's O Magazine, uh, O's Big Book of Happiness, L Canada, Zoomer, CNN.com, WTN, Vision TV, uh, and a member of the Hypnotherapy Association, certified hypnosis and pain management instructor, uh, she's a Reiki master, a speaker, author, and founding director of the Toronto-based Hypno Healing Institute, Hypnosis Clinic, and School. Debbie, how are you, my dear? Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for the wonderful introductory. Wonderful. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Well, I'm all blocked up as usual. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I, I was. That was a great workshop, by the way. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, you know, I, I sort of joked. Uh, I said it's it's almost like liquid plumber plumber for the soul. Now that's not in, entirely true, but that was just me being a, a bit of a smart ass. Um, but. I mean, it, it is interesting that, you know, again, people spend so much time and money in analysis, and it, it certainly has its, you know, I'm not here to say that not to do that, but, but how is it possible? It seems, it seems that, you know, almost ridiculous that one would spend a lifetime in an analysis when a few sessions of hypnosis can remove that same blockage. Well, first of all, I have to say some people need to spend the time in analysis, and uh, because they are uh, they are uh, they're not ready to 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 move forward, and they need to go slowly. There are some people they have to be in analysis. Let's not take that away from it. No, I that's used true. to do analysis all the time with people, and I still do sometimes even now. And when we're talking about um, Clearing in a few sessions, uh, clearing emotional blockages sometimes takes more than a few sessions, even with the hypnotherapy. So, uh, but it is faster. There is definitely much faster to clear the issues. The reason it's faster is because we have to think of the mind. The mind is, is uh, for this type of work, at least I would say, it has uh, the conscious, the subconscious, and the unconscious. The conscious is all, where all the logic exists, all the analysis exists, all the thoughts are there, but every thought that we have is associated with emotions. Those emotions are uh, stored at the subconscious level. And when, through hypnotherapy, through hypnosis, we can enter the subconscious part of our mind and we can go and do the work there. Therefore, um, our behavior, which is the unconscious level, will definitely change because we change the emotion. In other words, if I think if of somebody that I do not like because of my past experience, something, I don't know, they did something to me or I think they did something to me and I, I feel afraid of those people, the minute I think of that person, that fear takes over and my body paralyzes 
And that, again, is the unconscious part. But if I think of somebody which I like and I feel good about it, uh, automatically, and that's the thinking again, the conscious, and then the subconscious will bring their associated emotions, which is probably positive, and uh, then I will feel happy, I will feel good. And then the unconscious will take over, which basically, automatically, all those things are happening, which is the unconscious um, make you more relaxed and more happy and all that, and then we have a different result. So the reason hypnotherapy works faster is because we can enter that part of the mind, which is the subconscious part of the mind, that holds all these emotions. We well, see, I'm uh, British, and um, that's my background. And in, in our culture, what we like to do uh, is is uh, take those emotions and, and uh, squash them deep down inside until they become hard like a diamond. <laughs> and and that's, maybe that's part of the problem, right? We, 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 we repress those emotions, and then they're lost to us. We don't even, we don't, we're not even in communication with our emotional selves. Okay, I understand that, because what's happening, though, is when you suppress emotions, even though in a conscious level you think those emotions are not affecting you, um, the minute the minute you come near a situation where this um, similar to the time that you felt uncomfortable or you you had those emotions, automatically the subconscious, in order to protect you, is going to bring up those emotions. And this is what's happening many times. People think, I'm not going to be angry. Okay, let's not be angry about certain situations. And then something else comes up, and then they explode that anger because that was suppressed in their subconscious, and then it it's, can be uncontrollable. So you think you suppress, you're suppressing it, but in the same time, you know these emotions are stored there, and they're waiting to come out uh, in any and any time some some uh, something happen so the the idea here and, and you've been on and we've talked endlessly about past life regressions but when you put someone under hypnosis the the root of their problem uh let's say for example they have a fear of commitment uh yes. they or they don't even know that they just want to know why am i single why can't i meet the right person uh, and the the root of that problem isn't necessarily in a past life, correct? It could be it could be something that happened to them when they were three years old and they have no memory of it. That's right. Uh, the root of the problem can be in this life, in a past life. It can be in a genealogy. Can be when you are in the womb. It could be when you are three years old or two days old, or it could be when you're fifteen years old. Now, what's happening is, let's pretend you are a child. And, and That's not a stretch. Be... That's not a stretch, Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Let's say I am a child, and I love to be a child. But anyways, when we are two, three years old or one day old, we have our parents are fighting, and they're fighting about, uh, let's say, money. So you can be a few days old, and you hold that information, you listen to that, and you create um, an emotional attachment to that, and then your subconscious goes, okay, if these guys are fighting over money, then and if money brings fights, I will never have money. And if, if, and if, uh, if relationship means 
fighting, I will never go near a relationship. And then what you're doing in life, you become an adult, and then you're looking for a relationship, but the subconscious is, is supporting you and finding the people who are un- unavailable, uh, the people who are um, not exactly what you're looking for, and then you're looking to create money. In the reality, you pulling money, you're pushing money away just because of that belief that uh, if I have a money means trouble. And how many people do you know, Richard, that they say uh, money is the root of all evil? If any of your listeners say that, please stop saying that. Because if you have a negative association to relationships, to money, to health, to uh, anything you can think of, all of a sudden you're going to be pushing away what is what you wish to have. Because you do not have what you wish. You have what you, what you have inside of you. And inside of us, we do hold on to those emotions and beliefs. And until we go and change those beliefs, we can dance around as much as you want to, and you can go from one relationship to the other. When the time to commit comes up, and then you're never going to commit, or you, you can never find the right person, because your subconscious belief is holding you back, and it will never allow you to to bypass that, and if you do, you find the wrong person. If we want to find the right people around us, if we wanted to create more money, if we wanted to have to have a better health, if we wanted to have an um, easier life, we need to go back and find what is the programming that we carry. And this programming may have come from your parents, from your school, from your environment, from your uh, culture, from whatever that is. I, uh, different people have it from different sources. The reality is it's so easy to go back and clear it. Yes, you need a number of sessions, but you know what? In the scheme of, of the whole life, how much we're suffering, um, I, I am, uh, I, I am um, what can I say? I'm, sometimes I wonder how can people hold on to that and they, we have the same repetition over and over, creating negativity. And we still, even though people know that there is a help, they will not go for help because the fear of discovering something, I don't know, big or right. something. Right. In reality, um, when we go back, if we survived the situation before, we will survive it again. Well, and so, also, what did Einstein I'm say? I'm also that... talking about therapy, too. I'm not only talking hypnotherapy but just go for psychotherapy you can true find yourself too all right debbie uh, hold on uh, we'll come back in a moment i was just trying to remember that einstein quote in the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and, and expecting a different result. result they're just like we rehearsed it debbie okay we'll come back debbie papadakis psychotherapist board certified hypnotist removing blockages here on the conspiracy show Welcome back. Debbie Papadakis is here, psychotherapist, board-certified hypnotist, uh, past-life regression therapist, and uh, she's right here in Toronto, founding director of Toronto-based Hypno-Healing Institute and the Hypnosis Clinic and School. And uh, the website is debbiepapadakis.com. Debbie, D-E-B-B-I-E, Papadakis, P as in Peter, A, P as in Peter, a D A K I S P A P A D A K I S. That's Debbie Papadakis uh, dot com. So the the subconscious. Uh, uh, before we say any further, this, the the website is hypnohealing.com. Oh, um, I've got. You, uh, I'm sorry, I've got us linked up to the wrong. Um, 
It's it's uh, www.hypno-healing.com. Okay, we've got uh, we'll get that we'll get that switched over. Okay. Hypno-healing.com. The the email is Debbie at hypno-healing.com. Okay, so the the yes. subconscious um, that can also create physiological. Re- well, I guess that comes from the unconscious, but you don't. You may have, for example. When when a discussion starts around gets you know revolves around money or something or your salary, let's say you want to go in for a raise, and um, you may not even understand that you have this aversion to money. You don't understand the root cause, but that those subconscious those past memories and so forth that are lost to you that can can cause a physiological response, and you don't yes. even understand why. For example, your blood pressure goes up or you start. Yes. Your heart palpitates and so forth. Correct? Yes. Well, your body your body is affected by your thoughts, and if your thoughts are negative, so or fearful or um, creating anger, remember our thoughts create our emotions, and these emotions, uh, if they are negative, they will affect the body, and then we have, um, as you mentioned, the blood pressure and everything else goes up. Um, if we have a positive thought, our body is healthier because we'll, b- because the body goes into a healing mode. Naturally, our body goes automatically to a healing mode if we think positive thoughts. Now, what happens is we constantly think negative thoughts, and uh, people say, but I'm trying to do my best. I'm doing my best. In reality, if you hold on to negative thoughts, it will affect you not only in your physical world and health-wise and everything else, but in, in emotional and spiritual and every, everywhere in your life, and then you'll, you'll be attracting negative things. We have, we ourselves, holding on, whatever we have inside of us, we're attracting that. For example, if you have a fear about money, you will be sending money away instead of picking, uh, instead of attracting them. Instead of uh, bringing uh, opportunities in your life, you you basically um, you you bring in the negativity and you do, you do not see the opportunities and this is for anything uh, anything you do and people how do they know I have a blockages listen to your own language are you seeing the the glass half empty or are you seeing it half full are you gossiping are you uh, seeing somebody something some situation and you going into a positive mode what was good about it, or you go into the negative. If you go into the negative, if you have anger, if you uh, criticizing people, if you, I mean, you do have it inside of you. You have this negative emotion to believe. People who creating anything they want, they're very peaceful, harmonious. They see a situation and they look for opportunities. And people who creating the negativity, they see even a positive situation and they're going around and say, what was wrong about it? Right, right. Was that uh, Norman Vincent Peale's book, The Power of Positive Thinking? Yes, but he's, uh, and I have read this book a number of times years ago. The thing is, he's not talking, he's not taking it far, than, far enough to say, change your emotional beliefs and, uh, and thoughts and, uh, and memories, and then automatically you will be attracting positive uh, situations. But what he did was, he said, well, every time you have a negative thought, uh, tend to do positive, which is going to work, but sometimes we have to um, 
I don't know. People make affirmations. You have to say it two thousand times before the change will happen. Sometimes could be could be ten times. But uh, the basis of that is uh, yes, uh, we have to have a positive thought. But the easiest way to have a positive thought is to feel better about yourself. Is to clear the the, the blockages and then to feel better. And once you feel better, it's very easy to be positive. Well, it sounds like uh, what you're saying with with Norman Vincent Peale, for example, and the power of positive thinking is if you're simply every time a negative thought arises, switch it with a with a, a positive one. You're not a, you're only treating the symptom. You're, it's almost like taking out, you know, going into the back garden and pulling out the dandelions without pulling out the root. You're not addressing the root cause. Uh, uh, that's true. However, if you uh, repeat the positive statement over and over and over and over, uh, somehow even the root cause is being affected, and then uh, you can uh, turn into positivity. But it's much much more difficult to do that if you if you have a very strong uh, uh, upbringing with a very um, unshakable beliefs. Some people are very, what's the word, very strong. They're not flexible. They're not, and, and, and by just returning to positive, positive, I'm not sure if it might take very long time. But definitely you can affect your, uh, your future by stopping the negative thoughts and turn them to positive. The problem is when you have this negative thought, you don't even know you have a negative thought until you pay attention to them. True, true. So most people say, I'm doing the best I can. I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, working towards positivity. Meantime, the next statement comes out of their mouth is negative. So we need to pay attention. Uh, first of all, learn how to communicate with our subconscious. And every negative thought you have, Anything, for example, negative thought will bring your your whole body into uh, you shrink down uh, to make you um, make you more tight. Tight. Right. The positive thought will bring uh, lifting and uh, enlightenment, and uh, and then you create more positive and more positive thoughts, um, words, and statements, and therefore you open in the pathways to success and to uh, to bring the things that you want in life. Are there any studies that, that show that negative people are, are, uh, tend to be more sick, that they suffer more from heart disease or cancer? They have done many, many, many studies. And right now it's the, um, the, the, the association, the mindfulness, which is basically the basis of, uh, of uh, hypnosis. They just do it in a, in a relaxation way. Um, and they have done a lot of study, and, and many universities are doing the, 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 the negativity, how it affects our life. But the, the thing that I want to talk about, uh, Richard, is uh, in my heart, where my heart is, uh, we need to change the world. And in order to change the world, we need to um, change people's internal uh, conflicts. We need to make people feel better about themselves. We can put all the barriers and uh, borders and uh, uh, create more jails and uh, create all kinds of, uh, of ki- all kinds of uh, border, you know, like a, uh, what's, what I'm Well, you say we can lock these, we can, we can lock right. violent and hateful people up, but we're not addressing the, the root cause. We're not addressing the root cause, but we, and, and then, of course, people feel very negative. And um, all of a sudden, we create more negativity. So if we want to fix the global uh, problem, we have to help people to 
become more in harmony and to accept themselves as they are and to turn to love versus um, anger and hate and uh, and um, fear. And and fear, you're saying, is is really the root of almost all of our blockages, correct? I think so. Fear is a major one, and that. Well, we have a we have. A, I've always said, uh, and I, I know through my work, um, think of a pressure cooker. The top of the pressure cooker is the anger. And if we remove the pressure cooker, the anger, uh, inside we have the steam, which basically the sadness and the fear and the hurt and pain. So once we remove the anger, we have to remove the rest of it, and all of a sudden we become free. Um, and anger sometimes holds on to those emotions and so you can survive in the world, but uh, really it's hurting us physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and um, people have to start paying attention for uh, what's going on inside of them because um, my theory is uh, you, can be, um, you can be a better parent and create, and your children will be happier. You can be a better neighbor, a better teacher, a better whatever, by feeling better yourself. And once you do that, all of a sudden, the whole society is going to change. You know, when I, when I attended the Mighty Aphrodite and I attended your workshop, one of the things that I was sort of struck by, and this is, to me is fascinating, we like to think of human beings as being, you know, we're, we're pretty resilient, but we're also, it seems, very fragile in the sense that one experience, one even something that we don't even remember from childhood, one admonishment from a parent, one can have this effect that, that can send our lives into an entirely different orbit. You mentioned, you know, a, a fight over money when we're three years old and all of a sudden now we find ourselves constantly in dire straits financially because we don't understand why we have an aversion towards money. It's related to a fight, you know, our parents had. Doesn't that mean that we're incredibly fragile? As children, we're very fragile because we don't have the defenses to fight um, that thought because we don't know if it's right or wrong. But once we're growing up, um, we can uh, we can look at uh, at the outcome of our lives and then and then we can go and fix it. I mean, the good news for me is many years ago it was very difficult to even think about about uh, knowing how what to do with this uh, information but right now therapy has be, has advanced so much like a, like um, computers we have advanced so much that there are many m- different ways to resolve issues that we years ago didn't think we could resolve them so yes a little events uh, create uh, some subconscious beliefs and if those beliefs are negative they will affect us. In fact, if they're positive, they will affect us positively. So when we speak to our children, we have to um, think of that. For example, if your child, uh, uh, let's say, took his little bike and he lost his bike and he comes home and you think that, well, I have given you a lot of instructions not to leave your bike on the street or something like that, and you the child comes back and you say, you're never going to learn, meaning to lock your bike. In reality, that child may stop learning in school because 
the subconscious will pick up every word, word literally, and then will interpret that word, or that word, and then uh, this become the basis of your behavior, your thoughts, and then behavior. Wow, uh, you know now. You know, every parent out there listening is thinking, going back over everything they've said to their child over the last... We have to be so careful. Yes, we have to be careful how we speak to children because they're so open and they're so observing the information. Not only what words we say, but what kind of behavior we're exhibiting. How do we interact with other people um, in the family structure, but also outside too? So if we have a lot of fears... Our children will have fears. If we have, a, if we're positive and loving and caring, our children will will experience that. So you can have a very powerful, um, a very confident child, or you can have a child that is uh, a very very fragile and uh, and is affected in all their lives. However, as I said, there are. I mean, I have people from all over the world. They fly down here to do work for. Two three days we do work and then they go back. Uh, this week I had a number of people from uh, from United the United States. So it's it's uh, it's a very interesting um, work to be able to enter the subconscious and to clear the situations. In other words, to reframe them, to change them, to whatever needs to be done. And then the subconscious is so brilliant that when we do that, it knows how to to clear up all the subsequent events and uh, so we can have a different result. Debbie Papadakis, the Hypno Healing Institute, and the website is hypno-healing.com. Hypno, H-Y-P-O, hyphen, healing.com. Uh, so the example you gave about a child who does not do well scholastically, uh, then that person becomes an adult, maybe now they're in university, they're struggling, they're struggling. Yeah. Uh, they come to you and they want to find out, you know, why why do I have such trouble writing essays? And, and uh, why do I have such trouble paying attention in class and doing well in exams? Why am I flunking out? So that you could place them in, under hypnosis and then access their, their subconscious. And not in a past life, but regress them back to early childhood, to a memory they have forgotten, where they are told by their parents, you're never going to learn because... We keep telling you to lock your bike. You're never going to learn. It could be that that simple. Could be that simple, but sometimes to enter to find that particular event, we may have to go over and over. And sometimes the, that is maybe twenty percent of the problem, and there will be another another few different events. Because if we think of the the law of attraction, which we all, I'm sure, we saw the secret, and it says anything you think becomes reality. Uh, well, uh, originally you have, you creating that little thought, the, the little uh, emotional thought that says that I am, uh, um, I cannot learn fast. I, I will never learn. Just Debbie, and let me jump in here. Debbie, I got to take a time out. We'll, we'll finish up on the other side with this. Debbie Papadakis, okay. Hypno Healing Institute here in Toronto. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Debbie Papadakis stays with us from the Hypno Healing Institute here in Toronto, down in the Junction neighborhood. And the website, hypno-healing.com. Hypno-healing.com. We'll fix the link uh, on the website at Strange Planet, but it's hypno-healing.com. Before the break, Debbie, we were talking about, so let's say, for example, a child who's, or a, an adult, a young adult, struggling scholastically, 
Meanwhile, 20 years earlier, or 15, 16 years earlier, they were scolded by their parents and told, You'll never, you're never going to learn, you're never going to learn, and then this subconsciously affects them throughout their life. So you were saying that it, it, it may be more than just one regression where you unearth that lost memory of that conversation as the root of the problem. I also say, uh, wanted to say there that you don't even have to find sometimes the root cause of the problem. We can, we, what we need to do is we need to change that feeling. For example, if, let's say, a child does not like uh, math and is failing in math and is not doing well in math, well, first of all, we have to see, we have to communicate with a child, find out what is the belief about math. And their language will tell you, I hate math, I don't like it, it's not easy, it's very difficult, and so on. We need to change the feelings and emotion that child feels towards that uh, math, for example. So we can take, we can do all kinds of exercise, we can take something that they really like to do. For example, they like to play a game in the computer, some kind of games. So we can take that feeling of playing game and um, change the negative feeling of math, not liking the math, to um, to the same feeling as they like to play game. And we can do that very easily. Sometimes we do that with uh, people who don't like to exercise. So we can change these emotions without going back to the root cause of the problem. So you're, what are you doing? Are you planting suggestions while someone's in a hypnotic state? Um, I, I may ask them to what, what kind of feeling they are they experiencing while they are playing a game, their computer game. And I get them to feel that excitement, and then I ask them how do they feel when they are in the math class or they have to do their homework or they have to do their exercise, whatever they have to do. And it's a different feeling. So we then change the one feeling to the other, and all of a sudden, they start feeling better about math, and they're doing better in, in school. I have worked with a lot of children, uh, like uh, uh, not only university levels, but uh, the early early school level, and I have helped a lot, a lot of many, many, many kids to do better in school uh, by changing. Sometimes we will find the root cause. Sometimes the children, I will not, uh, I will not look for a root cause. I'll probably go and change the emotions, and all of a sudden they feel better about doing their homework. They're feeling better about school. If, if, if someone, the child, does not feel good about school and we can go and um, push them to go to school, they become more resentful and they become more, uh, they, they dislike the school more. But if we go and change that feeling, all of a sudden uh, they become, uh, they're, they're getting interested in the school work. And again, this is done through hypnosis. Through hypnosis and through the language we use and and uh, through a number of activities that I will do, an exercise I'll do, because I use, what I do, Richard, I would um, use hypno hypnosis, but I will do therapeutic work in the hypnosis, which is basically, it's much easier uh, because we enter the subconscious, and instead of doing the work, uh, um, uh, the, the feelings that I'm feeling right now, we go back to the root cause, which could be, as you said, three-year-old, five-year-old and all that, or past life or genealogy, something that is, came to them through the parents. Or we can go and just exchange the feelings. Um, we may not have as 100% results that we have with, 
Well, I'm not going to say 100% results because 100% I will never use that. I said that right now, but I take it back. Uh, we we have a better results by finding the root cause, but with children, I would not, uh, I would not, uh, especially with small children, I would not go and do regressions. I would just um, change the feelings, and all of a sudden they they have interest. They they like doing the math or English, whatever, whatever. Through what neuro linguistic programming? Well, it's, uh, you see again, neuro linguistic. I'm a trainer for neuro linguistic programming. All that is a hypnotic work. Everything together, you put a neuro-linguistic program, and you can put a, uh, I mean, uh, hypnosis and neuro-linguistic programming started, not started, it started many, 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 many years ago. But the neuro-linguistic program started with Milton Erickson, who you using hypnosis, and Virginia Satir, who was using uh, therapeutic work, because he was a family therapist. So they put the two things together, and then all of a sudden, we have the... Um, the hypno slash NLP slash who knows what else. Could you take, um, let's, let, let me give an extreme example. Uh, we have ISIS, of course, rampaging across the Mideast. And yeah. to me, that's a, it's a software issue. They, there's, you know, the, the, the ideology that they've been programmed with is bad. Yes. Could you... We'll take a time out when we come back. Think about this. What could you do, for example, using hypnosis with an ISIS suicide bomber? Could you hypnotize them? And if they're willing, if they want to change, yes. But if they don't want to change, if their idea is so strong and they don't want to change, you cannot do anything of anything at all. Because even with hypnosis, uh, let's not think that we can go and change anything we want to. The person has to be willing, the person has to want, the person has to be open to this work. All right, you've answered the question, so we'll, I'll think of another one before we come back. Debbie Papadakis, the Hypno Healing Institute, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Debbie Papadakis stays with us from the Hypno Healing Institute, hypno-healing.com. All right, um, so Debbie, the idea of hypnosis it doesn't work for everyone there are certain people that cannot be hypnotized correct well um, most people can be hypnotized uh, there are very few who the minute you tell them about hypnosis they they have this fear of being hypnotized now of course if somebody has a um, um, some medical problems some uh, mental problems they will not be able to follow instructions no we cannot hypnotize them but the majority of people can be hypnotized. Some can be hypnotized to a much deeper level than, than others. Uh, basically, it's how much fear you have, and that will affect the, the level of hypnosis. Uh, but I want to say, there, Richard, that three-quarters of the day we're all hypnotized. So let's, it's, a some, some, um, um, it's a state that we go ourselves. You're not including when we're asleep, right? You're including no, the waking really. hours. The waking when, hours. No, no. When you are awake, when you're doing this radio program and you're just focusing on the um, questions and the answers, when you are driving your car and you're thinking of your, your, um, I don't know, whatever, and you were, ha- were, were hypnotized when we're cooking and paying attention to this, um, whatever we're cooking. When we're talking to somebody and we have a very Paying attention to every word they say, that's a hypnotic state. 
Well, that's interesting you mentioned that. I, a couple of weeks ago, I was um, on the Bluetooth, hand, hands-free, but on the phone with my mother. And I started talking to her as I got onto the Don Valley Parkway to, to head down here to do the show. And we talked and we talked and we talked. And then the next thing I know, I'm in front uh, here at Zoomerplex waiting for the parking lot uh, security arm to go up. And I actually kind of scared myself because I had absolutely no memory of driving That's right. that vehicle. So I was hypnotized. You were hypnotized 100%. But at the same time, you have to know that if you were uh, while going to this um, driving, if an emergency arises, automatically your foot was going to be on the brake or whatever you needed to do without even thinking about it. Because even driving is a hypnotic uh, behavior. So don't think that we're losing our uh, consciousness. We, when we're hypnotized, we're more focused. Uh, and we actually were 25% more alert than we are when we're not hypnotized. Interesting, interesting. Now, the past life regression. Uh, occasionally, some of these blockages, the root problem or the root cause of some of these blockages is you believe, exists in another lifetime. Now, for me, you know, you and I have talked about this as well. Um, I, I don't subscribe to past lives. I don't believe in it. So what does that mean if, if does that mean I would not be, you couldn't take me back to a past life because I would resist or I don't believe? How does that work? Well, the resistance can, can play a role. However, you don't have to believe it in order for you to, to, to see it, to imagine it. It's just this imaginary work. Um, but, um, I mean, uh, to me, if I was to take the past life way out of my work, I will have less success in my work. Because the, the, long, the more back you go, the more back you go, the, the faster we can resolve the problem. So in other words, if you have an issue as an adult today, and if this issue, we're working on the issue today, it will take longer time to resolve that issue than going back, let's say, when you were two years old. And if this issue, when you're two years old, it takes less effort to, to clear that. And if we were, if the, the situation was past life, it would take even less effort to do that. So does not need, uh, it's not required to believe in it. Just to play along. Sometimes I say just pretend. Just just play along. And you also mentioned that the root cause may be um, through our DNA. In other yes. words, our ancestors. How does that work? Well, um, we, I mean, the medical society believe that we, we take from our parents our, the blood uh, levels and all that. But how about uh, the emotional levels? So emotions are, because if your grandmother was angry, then your father was mother, father, whatever, it's going to pick up some of that anger, and that anger is transferred to you. Sometimes we go back 10 or 20 generations, and we have no idea who these people are. We have no, um, we don't know anything about them. However, if we trace back, now is it true exactly 100% that started from then? No. However, I know myself if I take people all the way back to the generational levels, and sometimes when I take people to the generational level, I say, look, even though you don't know the people, you have no idea who they are, just look and see, feel, experience, what, what was the 
the dominant, the common denominator that these people have. And nine out of ten times people would say, well, they were angry or they felt not good about who they were. And this can travel from generation to generation. And we have a person in this current life all of a sudden feel this, the same emotions. And by going back and, and clearing it, uh, reversing it, uh, reframing it, uh, deal with it, all of a sudden we get the strength from, from that experience. And uh, if we clear enough, we can see the person um, totally transforms. Are you able to work on yourself, Debbie? Are you able to place yourself under Sometimes hip- the problem with uh, doing your self-work is... If I go back, I can trace myself and go back. Not a problem. However, when the emotion comes up, I can't. I don't even know what to do anymore because are you in the emotion or the logical side? The logical side would tell me what to do to guide me, while the logical disappears when I'm in the emotion. So then I, I've done it many times. I go and then I half an hour later I come back and I don't even know where I was. Hmm. You told a wonderful story. Um... I, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school, but you, you have a you have a blockage, uh, Debbie, and that is you say no to the universe. Yes. Explain. Can You're you tell that story? Can you tell that story about the the shopping cart? The shopping cart. Okay. I recently I was looking at my own uh, life story, and I thought, yes, I am, uh, um, I am, I am not accepting gifts. Because a number of people give me gifts, and I just I don't, don't want it. And I thought, what is, what's happening inside of me, and I do not accept those gifts? So I communicate with the universe. I did all kinds of work that day. And, um, and the same day, I went grocery shopping, and if you want me to tell the story. I went to grocery shopping, and I, I, I had to have 25 cents to pick up the, the buggy. Well, I didn't have a 25 cents on, in my bag. And uh, one lady who saw me struggling with this, she's giving me 25 cents. And I said to her, uh, oh, thank you so much. I, I, I was happy. However, I had a dollar in my hand. I'm trying to give her that dollar. Because I realized afterwards that I wasn't accepting the gift. And she said to me, no, I don't want your dollar. You just take this, my 25 cents. And I said, well, how about if you give it to somebody? And she says, why don't you give it to somebody? <laughs> so I thought, okay, I'm going to take this 25 cents. And then I realized, oh, my God, this morning I talk about this not receiving things, not accepting things, and here I am the same day I was given this 25 cents and I wasn't accepting it. I was about to leave, and I thought, why did I go back and look for the 25 But anyways, I didn't. So that was an indication for me to start opening up and receiving more gifts. By the way, this, is, this happened a few weeks ago, and I have a number of people give me things, and I had to take it, accept it, and be thankful about it. And the other thing is we need to, be, to have a great gratitude towards the universe. The universe provides anything that we wish, uh, but we have to have a good intention inside, and we have to be positive. Because by not being positive, the price we pay, Richard, is so big, so big. 
Uh, it, yeah, it's hard to believe. Even Debbie Papadakis has blockages. Now, the, actually, the story didn't end there because you missed a part. You said on the way back to your car, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, you actually ended up finding a quarter, and then you thought, oh, I better yeah. give this to somebody. Yes, 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 yes. So, so the, the universe gave you a quarter, and you wanted to give it back. Yes. So, because, again, the programming inside was uh, that don't accept gifts. Or, did, did you ever discover the root I cause? Think it was more than that. It was uh, if, if they give you a gift, what is the uh, what are they expecting back, or something like that? Which is, um, it took me a few days to to uh, really understand what I was doing. I don't want to get too personal here, but I mean, did you discover the root? Where was there something that happened in your childhood or in a previous life that 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 makes well, you? Well, the, the thing was when I was a kid. Uh, my mother, every time she gave us something, she gave me something along with my brothers. She asked me to do things, and I didn't want to do it. And then every time she gave me something, uh, I had to do something. And I thought, okay, receiving things means I have to go back and do three times more work. There are always strings attached, in other strings words. Strings attached, ah. which is kind of, which is, in reality, is not true in every situation. But in my mind, I had that, I created that belief as a child. And then, in my life, it shows in many other ways, because I am also the kind of person, I can do it myself. I don't need help. Um, so, I'm working towards all that. And did you uncover that memory under hypnosis? Uh, yes, I did. So, you didn't remember that? Well, after I thought, and I thought, and I, the, the visions have started coming up, and yes, I, I saw what was happening, and I had to go back and do some work around it, because it's not even about the 25 cents. It's about how much in my life I have, uh, um, I have, I had become, uh, we use the word stubborn. I'm going to do my way. I don't need a help. I can do it in myself, which is, cre- I, I, my life is harder because of it. Hmm, interesting. Uh, is this covered by, um, Insurance for medical insurance, uh, uh, health plans, health coverage. Well, um, and hypnotherapy by itself is not covered, but um, I personally use hypnotherapy with psychotherapy, and I'm also psychotherapist. And very few insurance cover the part of it. Part of it, um, number few of insurance, but um, I believe by next year. Uh, all of the insurance are going to be covered in it, but it's not covered by your hip. What about, you know, I'm just thinking, uh, you know, a, a, a business, let's say a, a corporation, and they've got a sales force, and they want, you know, they want to remove blockages to help their salespeople become yes. more effective. I mean, you could, do you work with, with corporately too? Yes, I have worked with corporately, and I have uh, helped people. Um, then we do workshops, and we, we help them to clear up their, their issues unless somebody wants to do it uh, individually. I do have a number of people who come from, uh, from other parts of the world, including Europe and Asia, and other people will come down, and we do work. But we also do work some work on the phone, too. All right. Well, I'm going to come down and see you. You're going to put me under, and then you're going to plant a suggestion that I hate ice cream. Can you do that for me? <laughs> we can do that very easily. <laughs> Thank you, Debbie. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you for having me. By the way, this uh, January 4th is a hypnosis day all over the world, and I'm going to have a workshop, and it's going to be about New Year's resolutions and change your mind, change your life, 
If anybody's interested, please um, call our office and uh, we'll love to see you. January 4th, Hypnosis Day. Hypno-healing.com. Call the number there on the website, hypno-healing.com. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Tim Spreen. Thank, thank you, Ali. Thank you, all of you, and thank for the listeners. All right, thank God you, Debbie. God bless you all. All right, thank you, Albert, rather. I called you Ali. <laughs> the great one, Muhammad. Muhammad Ali. Down goes Fraser. <laughs> Albert Vinzel. All right, see you next week. Brand new show coming at you. I hope you'll be there. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.